1: Taylor Stevens, the New York Times best selling and award winning author of kick ass international thrillers. And this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking riding in the butt one word at a time.
0: And for you listeners out there, you'll either be disappointed or happy to know that after last week's episode, which was entirely chit chat, we have no chit chat for this week. So we're going to get <laughs> right into it. As Taylor teased last week, we're going to be talking about. Character inconsistency. So Taylor, what do you have for us?
1: Character. (laughs) So (laughs) this subject of character, it's a it's a topic we keep returning to on this show. And that's because when it comes to storytelling, character is everything. And we've had plenty of discussions about plot versus character and how the two intertwine and So on, but I'm not going to rehash all of that here. It's just there's been too much to try and encapsulate it before moving on to this new way of looking at it. But before we head into the meat of today's topic, I wanted to do a callback to a small part of episode 318, which was what are stakes and why do they matter? And just kind of do a Cliff Notes refresh on why we keep talking about character at all. And this is what we said on that previous episode. How any given part of the audience feels about a given character will directly control their given emotional investment in the outcome of that character's stakes. The more an audience connects with or resonates with the character, the higher their emotional investment will be relative to the stakes. And it's important to note here that connection and resonation are not the same things as liking or relating to. The audience doesn't have to like the character for the emotional investment to engage, though liking a character certainly does help. The audience doesn't even have to relate to the character or to the character's stakes. That helps as well, though. The key to triggering connection and resonance is empathy. And the key to triggering empathy is authenticity. The closer you are able to get your characters to feeling real, alive, and fully human, the more the audience will be able to invest in the outcome. When characters are flat or feel inauthentic, when there's no resonance and the audience can't find a way to connect, It is very, very difficult to care what happens, and the audience becomes detached and has little emotional investment in the outcome. So, that is sort of our launch point for coming back to this subject of character. And in this case, we're going to be talking about character inconsistency. So, the reason for this is one of the key ingredients that goes into building characters that feel real, alive fully human is character consistency. And when we talk about character consistency, we're not talking about rigidity or predictability. In real life, humans grow and change. And in real life, humans are basically walking, talking contradictions. Even we ourselves don't always understand why we say or why we do the things that we say and do, which Maybe possibly helps explain why we're also experts at rationalizing away our own personal hypocrisies, our double standards, our irrational behavior, while at the same time just being acutely aware of everyone else's. The point is that humans, we're not algorithms, we're messy. And that means our characters are also allowed to grow and change and change their minds and be messy and behave and speak in ways that don't necessarily conform to like this rigid character outline we've built for who they are. So there's wiggle room there in terms of what we mean when we're talking about character consistency and what we mean when we're talking about characters who behave or behave in ways or do things that aren't true to character. But the thing about messiness and about hypocrisies and double standards and inconsistent behavior is when you peel back the outside layers and you take a a long hard look into the deepest darkest personality corners just about everything we do everything we say it actually is predictable even the contradictions but it's that everything we do and say and think it's a response to something, right? Something that's happened to us, even if that thing is so far back, we don't even consciously remember it. It could be a response to our fears, our desires. And again, even if we're not consciously aware of what those fears and desires are, that's how it works in real life. But the difference between real life and fiction is that in real life, many people, maybe even most people, I don't know, they go through their entire lives acting upon and responding to their environments without ever really taking a good, hard look at what's driving them to behave and believe in the ways that they do. And in fiction, there you have to take that look. You have to understand. It's a requirement, basically. And, and this is especially true if your characters do or say things that get even close to creeping across the line of who you've portrayed that character to be and not just who you've portrayed them to be but even who the audience perceives that character to be according to their own interpretation of it if you if you have a fictional character that does or says anything slightly outside those rigid boundaries of just sort of generic, culturally accepted behavior without doing that introspection, without understanding where those choices or that behavior comes from, then from the audience perspective, their core understanding of who and what the character is, it's going to begin to shatter. And that character begins to become undone. And and they don't really Feel real and authentic and alive so much as they start, the character starts to take on this wooden puppet sort of feel to them. And that's because the audience no longer has a way to connect the actions and the things that are happening with the character's inner world. That's why in fiction, we have this you have to explain, you have to dig into the underpinnings behind the behavior in ways that real life you you can just go through life without without doing that. I mean, you'll still in real life face the cause and effect and the consequences of these decisions and maybe not understand why things are happening to you. But that's life. That's Everybody gets to choose that on their own. But in fiction, we don't get away with that so easily. So when we're talking about character consistency, what we're really talking about is character integrity and not integrity like... I have integrity, I'm virtuous, but integrity as in soundness or wholeness, like when you have a building structure that loses integrity, it's no longer safe. That version of integrity, right? So I wanted to focus on this whole subject a little bit more today by using what I would consider maybe a rather extreme example of what character inconsistency looks like. And this example comes to us courtesy of the HBO show, True Blood. And a quick recap for those who maybe have haven't seen the show or saw it years ago and have since maybe forgotten the details. So True Blood.
0: I'm raising raising my hand.
1: (laughs) Okay. So True Blood is based off the Sookie Stackhouse novels written by Charlene Harris, And full disclosure, full disclaimer here, I have never read the books. So I have no idea how closely this show follows the books. And none of this commentary is based on the books. I just don't want there to be any confusion here. This discussion we're about to have is entirely about the TV version. So get that out of the way. True Blood is a story world in which vampires have existed for millennia, but they're only now recently making their presence known to the human population at large. Basically, they have come out of the shadows or they're trying to, according to their lingo. And the vampire population has their own rules, their own leadership, their own laws, blah, blah, blah. And the present day leadership is leading this charge to come out of the shadows. And their goal is they want to be fully recognized, to have legal status and be able to live normal lives side-by-side with humans, be accepted just as everyone else. And they, it's this concept they call mainstreaming. Like they're being like everybody. In in the past, vampires have been very predatory and they're trying to not... People are friends, not food, (laughs) that type of thing. And the thing that's making it possible now... And why this is only happening now and not decades ago or whatever, is that there's finally a synthetic human blood substitute, which means that vampires don't have to feed on humans. And that's what kind of makes the whole idea of vampires more acceptable to humans is that you're not walking around thinking that you're just a blood bag. Now naturally in this world not all the vampires are in favor of this this synthetic blood substitutes basically just nourishment it doesn't satiate the hunger or the drive or any of the predatorial instincts and so there are lots of vampires who are opposed to it and there's infighting and drama and it makes for a really good story and in this same story world there are also werewolves and shapeshifters and fairies and witches and ghosts and A whole other slew of mythical and supernatural beings. And not all of these mythical creatures are on friendly terms with each other, and within each particular group of quote unquote being or whatever, there's factions and histories and more drama. And all of that also makes for a really good story. It's very, a very rich, highly textured story world in terms of what exists within it. And the protagonist of this story. Her name is Suki, and she's a telepath. She can hear people's thoughts. And the reason for her ability is slowly revealed as the story progresses. And that reason directly connects to multiple plot points through the seasons. And we learn who and what Suki is. And as we learn that, that, it provides a plausible explanation for why so much paranormal weirdness keeps happening in this backwater small louisiana town and so all of that is it's tight it's pretty tight from a storytelling perspective and where it it loses its grip a little is in this story world just about everyone who is anyone is if they're male Becomes completely enamored and smitten with Suki and slash or wants a piece of her figuratively and literally. So that sets up for, well, sets up for what the scene that we're going to talk about, but it creates this interesting story dynamic because it's not unusual in romance or young adult fiction for there to be two men vying for the affections of the same young woman that's kind of tropey but you know it's it's there you know that's twilight was that and um i mean just a lot of stories from in that general reading or viewing uh genre are like that but this one goes way 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 beyond that Because you have so many characters falling head over heels for and vying for the attention and the blood and the body of this same young woman. And that could very easily just spiral and crash into a mountain of just cringy, eye-rolling disbelief. And so when I look at it from a storyteller's perspective, it seems to me like a pretty obvious storytelling choice for this counterbalance to all of that to try and avoid the cringe avoid the eye rolls or whatever like yeah right what's so special about her that there's this attempt to portray this character Suki, as an independent strong-minded young woman who isn't looking for all of this attention she often doesn't want it and most importantly and this is specifically in counterbalance to all the guys who are trying to save her and protect her, that she's quite capable of taking care of herself, thank you very much. That's the attempt. But from the beginning, Suki is her own walking contradiction. Because in addition to being portrayed as capable and independent, And this portrayal comes about the things that she says and also from the choices that she makes and the way she dismisses certain things and just headstrong does what she wants to do anyway. She's also just saccharinely sweet and innocent and naive. Regardless of the words coming out of her mouth, regardless of the way she tells people to leave her alone, she still ends up in these just scenario after scenario where she needs saving. And she only comes out okay because other entities are getting involved in in coming to her aid. So in other words, for me, sometimes even when her character is consistent, she still comes across as being inconsistent because of how difficult it is for me, maybe not everybody, but for me to reconcile this character that's almost willfully intentionally blind to the dangers around her and overconfident in her own ability to protect herself with this constant insistence that she's fine on her own and doesn't need help. So in this story, the people, the human people who are close to her, they're constantly, and I mean constantly, warning her, stay away from vampires, stay away from werewolves, stay away, stay away, be careful, blah, blah. And for the most part, she just ignores every single one of them in a way that borders sort of an equivalent to a character being alone in a cabin out in haunted woods, hearing noise outside and deciding to go investigate it on their own in their pajamas or skimpy nightgown or something. I mean, that's just classic eye-rolling horror story trope and that's kind of how thick this is in her i'm gonna be fine you know i don't need anybody i'm just a dumb blonde sort of thing going on except that most of her decisions usually end up working out pretty well for her but she's like constantly in danger getting kidnapped harassed threatened bullied she gets saved by quite a few times. She saves herself sometimes. And through all of this, the constant refrain coming out of her mouth is, I can take care of myself, even though it's quite obvious that it's obvious from the way that she's constantly having to other people come to her rescue that that's not entirely true. And sometimes this contradiction between what she says and how she behaves and, and the story world realities can be a bit much for me in terms of believability like it it creates this world where like the protagonist everything revolves around this protagonist but for me she's the least enjoyable least likable and most annoying character in the whole series and that's because of this this contradiction between I can take care of myself and oop, I need saving again, but I don't need you. And I didn't need you to come do this for me and stop giving me your attention because I don't want you. And oh, now I'm going to go to bed with you. It just, oh, anyway, at least that is fairly consistent though. This, this whole, I'm a badass and I can take care of myself presentation, the way she acts, right? At least that's fairly consistent until it isn't. And that's, it's one of those isn't moments that I want to work with here that I feel like provides a pretty good example of not only what character inconsistency looks like, but also an example of how easy these types of issues can be to fix. And they can be, but only if the storyteller is attuned to what's happening in the first place. But before we go there, I just want to. Make sure you understand where my own personal biases are in all of this so that if you want to weigh my opinion or factor them against your own life experience, you at least have the knowledge. So to me, this show is really campy and it's just littered with contrivances and shortcuts. And the worst of those, again, to me, are the contradiction between Suki's words and her actions as they pertain to the world that she's, the story world that she's living in. And because I live with words and I'm immersed in story on a daily basis, these issues just they gl- they're glaring to me. They're so hard for me to ignore. And I don't think that most people would experience it that way. But it's impossible for me to watch the show without disbelieving. Like I never am able to fall into that suspension of disbelief as it pertains to that character with other aspects of the show. Sure. But never with her and and it's almost like i have this jaded sense that the whole reason that these character contradictions exist in the first place is because the story creators are trying to force forcefully like uh, not maybe hand handedly reconcile between this damsel constantly in distress needs saving by all the hot men who are fighting over who can have her with a more modern moral and social code that views that type of thing as outdated, paternalistic. It's a trope that deprives women of agency and basically turns them into blank canvases for people to, you know, put their fantasies onto. And it's like, well, we're going to try and make it not that by giving her this real independent kind of personality. And that could be completely wrong. Like, that could have not even factored into the thinking that went into this. But to me, that's the way that I feel about it. So I cannot separate that from my viewing experience. I've never been able to watch this and feel that that character is authentic. To me, she's always felt forced and fake, kind of like the film equivalent of trying to rehab an old house by just slapping a new cone of paint over the warped and rotting boards and just hoping nobody notices and so with all of that, you're going to wonder, well, if it bothers you so much, why do you keep watching it? And I ask myself the same question. But it's just that in spite of all those glaring, annoying things, I can't stop watching it. And what that tells me is that in spite of that stuff and the things that I can point to as being wrong about the show story-wise, story obviously it gets a whole lot of something right. Just not that part of it. I mean, the show was huge. It was popular. And, and so there's gonna be a lot of people who are like, what are you talking about? That show was amazing. And yeah, I'm sure it was for you. So, this is my personal bias, my baseline bias, and I'm giving it to you so you know where I'm coming from and you can judge what I have to say based on that. So now let's move on to this scene, right? And we're gonna look at it as a case in point for what character inconsistency looks like, how to avoid it, how to fix it without ripping your whole story apart. So by the time this particular scene takes place, I think we're like in season three or four. And here, Suki takes it on her upon herself to try and save some of her friends who are being held hostage by a bad guy. I'm using heavy quotes in bad guy because I want to give away spoilers to anybody who might not have seen this. And this person wields really powerful magic. And in this instance, Sookie's insistence on getting involved is actually the right call from a story perspective. like all the bases are covered to make it make sense. Law enforcement would be they'd be just absolutely useless here. Um, Those who normally would have been better suited to intervene can't for very clearly spelled out reasons, not contrived or convenient reasons. Um, Equally important in this instance The characters that normally would come to Suki's rescue if she was in danger, they are also out of the picture. They cannot save her. So she really is on her own as far as the story world goes, probably truly for the first time. And so... She shows up to where her friends are being held hostage. And she sort of has a plan. and she gets involved, and the story progresses, and the plot twists. And it ends up where Suki is inside the same big room where all the hostages are, and the quote unquote, bad guy realizes what's going on, that Suki is there to um, rescue these people. And it ends up where Suki gets encircled in a ring of fire by magic. Right. So what this fire is and looks like is important for understanding the context of my picking apart the scene that follows. So Suki is not trapped inside a burning building. She's not, for example, in a room with a single exit and everything's burning around her and she has no idea where the fire is on the other side of the door. Here is a fire circle. So the circle is maybe, you know, six feet across and the fire is maybe about four feet high. Nothing else in the room is on fire and the fire is not touching her or hurting her. The fire is not spreading. She's just stuck inside it. So it's more like if someone outlined a circle in starter fluid and then set it set it alight. It's just a circle of fire and she's inside that circle and everyone else is outside that circle and nobody else is at risk of being burned and the bad guy who used to make the magic to make it happen is there and the hostages who are powerless to do anything to help her are outside that firing they can see Suki she can see them nobody's there's nobody else around and there are people outside the building Suki knows it they're they're being prevented from entering or reaching the building because of this big magic shield that's going to burn them alive if they try and cross it. So everybody who's inside that room that's all there is. There is no one else. And so here, in this moment, when the people who would normally come rushing in to save her can't, in this moment where she's truly on her own with no backup, no possibility for rescue, What does this strong, independent, problem-solving woman who's been telling everyone time after time that she can take care of herself and doesn't need saving, who's walking into the arms of danger, what does she do? Does she attempt to cross this one-inch band of fire? Does she make an attempt to stomp on it, take off a shirt and try and beat it down? Does she do anything that a rational human being, much less person who's used to getting out of tight scrapes might do to try and save themselves? No, no. This strong, independent woman who knows that nobody around her can help her and knows that the beings that usually come to help her can't, she starts wandering around the middle of that fire circle screaming, help, somebody help me, at the top of her lungs. That's what she does. She's not screaming to the bad guy. She's not screaming to any of the hostages who are being forced to watch this. She's just wandering around and screaming, somebody help me, into a void. Like, who's she talking to? And that's it. That's the entirety of what this feisty, I can take care of myself character does to try and extract or extricate herself from this situation. And this might maybe have made sense. It might have worked. If there was some aspect of her history that related to fire, maybe something bad in her childhood that left her traumatized and would have shut down her normal, rational problem-solving skills and just caused her to become this brain mush that's completely helpless to do anything except scream for help. But that's not the case. I mean, there's nothing in her history to explain this sudden helplessness. And in fact, to to this point, the show has gone out of its way, despite all evidence to the contrary, that she is not a damsel in distress and not helpless. And in spite of all evidence to the contrary, she is not just a puppet doing and saying stupid things because the plot requires those things to happen. It goes out of its way to try and make sure you do not see her as this helpless victim with no agency. And I I can't even count the number of times those words, I can take care of myself. I don't need saving, have come out of this character's mouth. So it was obviously important to the show creators that they maintain and establish that this character is not an outdated trope and then just bam, right like that. She is the epitome. Of that trope. Why? Why did they do this? Why did they destroy this tiny shard of believability, the only shard of believability they ever had, with something so blatantly opposite? And honestly, I have no idea. It's possible that this whole scene worked differently on the page in the script. It's possible that whoever was directing that episode just wasn't as attuned to the characters they should have been. It's possible something important got cut out during the editing process. But I suspect it's equally possible that the show creators were so focused on creating some perceived sense of danger that they were blind to the characterization issues in the scene. And that's the part that I really struggle to wrap my head around. Because this is the episode's pivotal scene. Everything that happened prior, it was clearly leading up to this. And everything that's happening with the other characters and storylines inside and outside this building, they're all connected to this scene. So this scene exists because the plot requires it to exist. There's no question in my mind about that. But that still doesn't explain this because scenes existing because the plot requires that they exist, that is a de facto critical core part of how every plotted story starts out. So the issue isn't that that happens. Of course it happens. This is storytelling. The craft in storytelling, the skill is being able to integrate those required plot scenes and the characters together in such a way that the character's actions and choices and dialogues all become completely, apparently to the audience, organic. Where the audience experiences them as the only possible realistic thing that could have happened in that moment. And that's what this scene fails to do. And it fails because the character's actions are in exact opposition of who this character is supposed to be, in other words. The character is inconsistent. And that character inconsistency makes a mockery out of the scene and the character. So rather than increase tension or become a pivotal point in the story and all this action that's happening, the scene just absolutely shatters the suspension of disbelief and becomes a joke. And the character becomes, well, in my for me, as with my own already like not taking that character seriously. It's like, laugh out loud. Are you kidding me? So there we have an example, an extreme example, in my opinion, of what an inconsistent character looks like in real time, like seeing it, like, oh my God, how did that end up in this? Now, a little side note on thoughts about TV and movies is that film is able to take liberties that novels can't even dream of being able to get away with. I don't know why, it just is. And I haven't worked in TV or movie development, so I really don't know. I have no experience or expertise to draw on to talk about what these type of story discussions might look like from that side of the process. But I do sometimes wonder, from this place of ignorance, if because TV and movies are more forgiving of cliches and cheats and shortcuts and just bad detail and bad information, I wonder if that means that there's not as much pressure on the creative side, or maybe the pressure comes to bear in other ways that novelists don't face, that It creates an environment where those who are involved in that creative process become blind to those particular issues during production. In other words, they're they're used to not feeling that pressure to try and get it right because it's a more forgiving forgiving medium in that specific uh, area that it, it creates this lack of compulsion. For 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 the for getting it right. And I, I hope one day I'll be able to understand storytelling from the visual pr- perspective, from that production standpoint, and have a better grasp of it so that I can actually speak to it with some measure of knowledge and not just guesswork. But right now, it's all just guesswork. I don't know why that happens with film and TV. I just know what the outcome looks like. And it does present yeah, a little bit of a conundrum when using a film-based example for book-based advice, because now we're running into a little bit of an apples to oranges scenario. You, You just really don't see that same type of blatant character inconsistency in books the way you would in film, at least not the books that I've been reading. And so when character inconsistency shows up in books, it's often a lot more subtle and even when it's subtle, it's still going to be far more impactful and destruction, no, destructive to the suspension of disbelief than a hugely blatant visual representation of it like that. So that's really important to keep in mind when you're going over your own work is that character consist- inconsistency on the page, it's not going to smack you in the face the way that it does on screen. And so you might have to look harder to find and eliminate those issues anyway okay so how do you prevent character inconsistency well we did cover this in more detail in episode 253 and that shows titled character consistency there's also a fantastic worksheet on patreon if i may be so bold as to pat myself on the back for this that it's under the Hackcraft tag and it's called solving problem scenes. And it walks you through the process on a sort of a flowchart, granular, granular level to help you find and fix these types of character issues. And there is a section in there specifically dedicated to character issues and scenes that exist because the plot demands them. And that's what we're dealing with here. The plot needed this to happen. How do you have your character be consistent in this plot demanded scene? So I know that not everybody who's listening to this is going to be able to go back and immediately refresh themselves on that. So for the sake of review, character consistency requires that you understand why your characters are making the choices they're making. It requires that you're able to articulate those reasons to yourself. And I mean, depending on what your story requires, you will probably have to articulate at least some version of that, those reasons to your audience as well. And this process of understanding, it involves asking and answering a lot of whys for yourself. Why did the character do this? Why did the character say this? What is the character really thinking, feeling? are the character's motivations? Are the are there things the character isn't even consciously aware of themselves? It's causing them to act and do these different things. And then the challenge is to, create, to craft each scene so that it reads as if it's being driven by the characters, not the other way around. And the only way you can do that is for those characters' actions and responses to feel are organic, to feel authentic and self-actualized, and that only happens if you understand the characters, their inner lives, and and what's driving their actions and their decisions. And if anybody who was part of that process in filming that particular scene or editing it or whatever had stopped and asked, "Is is this what a character who says I can take care of myself, I don't need somebody to save me, is this?" what they would do, what would a character do in this scenario? The plot requires that they don't get out of that circle, but how do we run this sequence so that it still looks like they're an independent person who can take care of themselves? What do we do? Those are the types of questions you have to be asking yourself when your character is a scenario that the plot requires them to be like my stories are almost entirely plot requirement driven. The plot says, this has to happen, that has to happen, this has to happen, and I have to find a way to align the characters, who they are, their core sense of identity, how they would respond in a situation like this. I have to align their inner worlds and their outer worlds to that plot point in such a way that it feels that the character is driving the plot and not the other way around. So if you can't find a way to align the plot and your character So if the character's actions and decisions feel organic and natural to what's happening there, you can't use that plot point as it exists. And if the story can't work without that plot point, your only options are to change the story or change the character. And that's just a quick refresh. You know, if you want more, please go back and re-listen to episode 253. Go find that how to solve problem scenes on Patreon on my account, which is patreon.com slash Taylor Stevens. Look under the Hack the Craft tag. It's called How to Solve Problem Scenes. It's a tutorial slash worksheet that is super helpful in sorting through these types of issues. But now that brings us to the question how do you fix it? How do you align plot and character so that the character's actions feel organic and natural to what the plot is asking them to do? And I'm going to try and answer this by looking at that scene as it currently exists and focus on how easy it would have been to fix it so that the character remained consistent and how you can do that without overhauling your entire story. Like these are easy things to do, but it requires attention. It requires thought. It requires not just rushing through the words on the page and it's going to slow down your word count. It's gonna, but these are the things you can think about when you're walking, when you're in the shower, when you're driving, when you're doing things not at your desk. And it helps to give you that understanding of where to go once you are at your desk. So, in this particular scene, the one that I described to you, where she's in that ring of fire, there are two things that happen that, in my opinion, again, just my opinion, that violated character consistency. And again, just my opinion. I say that fixing just those two things would have fixed everything else that wasn't working or at least made the everything else's small enough that I, maybe even I wouldn't have noticed them or I would have, even if I did notice them, I would have just been like, oh, okay, fine. And and it wouldn't have like left me laughing at the ridiculousness of the whole thing. So <clears throat> the first one is Well, obviously, the plot required that this character stay trapped inside that ring and not be able to escape it. And that's fine. That's normal. That is not an issue. It became an issue because of the lack of any attempt, any action at all on the part of this. I don't need someone else to save me character who did nothing at all to try and save herself. So the solution here, in my opinion, is in the same amount of screen time page time that's wasted on showing this character wandering around with her head in her hands, which is like the visual equivalent of, what do I do? I'm stuck and helpless. I can't even save myself. That character could have attempted and failed to cross the magic fire. Like, we're dealing with magic here, which means we're not even limited to the laws of reality, which means the opportunity for plausible actions are endless, She could have approached the fire with like an intent to run through it, but every time she gets through the fire, roars hotter and brighter and bigger, or, and she could have attempted to run through it, but an energy wall knocked her back, or she could have attempted to bat out the fire, but wherever she dampens the flame, it just comes back bigger, or she could have called the people on the other side, hey, throw me that blanket, try and lay a jacket down here, let's make a bridge over this. But then when they try and participate, the magic freezes them, so they're not able to move. Or she herself has, by this point in the story, discovered some of her own special abilities. She could have used some of those abilities to attempt to engage the person who's wielding the magic in the first place. Anything, anything at all that showed her being active and trying to save herself would have solved the majority of the character inconsistency issues in that scene. And like I said, the possibilities are literally endless. And this scene failed to utilize even one, even just the most basic use of one. It didn't even try at all. And that's what makes it so awful from a storytelling perspective and so disruptive to audience participation. And it's going to look different. On the page when you're writing your books is not going to be extreme. It's not going to slap you in the face like that, but the result is still the same of how the audience gets pulled out, yanked out, and just <laughs> whatever I can't read this anymore that you don't want that to happen and that's why we're talking about the importance of character consistency, how to avoid it, how to fix it, etc. The second thing that I believe fell think should could be fixed is basically shut up already. So this show in general has a lot of screaming in it and often for really stupid reasons and nearly always just exaggerated and over the top, just full long scream to the point of cringe and the screaming itself. It's annoying to me personally, but it's this campy and tropey and whatever, you know, it's kind of like the style of this thing. So it's really not that bad. Big of a deal in terms of characterization. But screaming for help to nobody in particular, when you know that no one who can hear you can actually help, that just makes the character look insipid and infantile and just dumb and helpless. (laughs) Why would you do that? Screaming out of fear or pain? Sure, that would work. Knock yourself out. But screaming Somebody help me when there are people standing right there looking at you and you know they can't help you? Just no. So if the plot requires the character to scream, the only change that would have been needed here would be to remove the words. Just scream out of fear, pain, whatever. If the plot was requiring that the character scream with words, like if there's dialogue required here for some reason, if the visuals aren't enough, then those words are going to need to be pertinent to who the character is. In this case, someone who thinks and solves problems and has no trouble at all telling what people what to do or asking for specific, well-articulated help. But now she's suddenly mute and can only go, somebody help me! And the dialogue would need to directly connect to the current circumstances. There is no somebody who might actually hear her and be able to respond. Who is she asking for help? What is she asking them to do? If she's asking for help from a higher power, then that needs to be specifically addressed in that way. God, please help me or whatever the situation would call for. This somebody, please help me. Well. People are watching you wander around, holding your head in your hands and screaming somebody help me. That's just no. That's it. That's how easy it would have been to fix that entire scene. How easy it would have been to salvage the scene and the character inconsistency. Resolve them. No change to the story. No change to the character. Just small, tiny tweaks to the character's actions and the character's dialogue. That's it but to fix a problem you have to be able to see it and i guess that's just really the biggest challenge of all so if you are fortunate enough to have theater readers and somebody's telling you i don't really understand why this character is doing that that right there is your cue that there is a character inconsistency thing going on it doesn't matter if you think it's consistent it's this it's what your audience feels. If one person says it and that's it, everybody else seems to get it, then it might be a reading comprehension issue. But if you hear the same question more than once, it's a you issue. It's a lack of clarity. It needs. It means that there is something going on in that character's life, in the decisions that they've made, the things they are saying that doesn't make sense. And all you need to do is clarify it. You don't have to change the plot. Or well, maybe you do. I don't know. It depends on what the situation is. But for the most part, I have found that you don't need to make these huge sweeping changes. You only need to clarify. And when you're working with the written word, usually those clarifications are just a line or two of inner dialogue prior to the action that explains why the character has chosen to do what they've done. And that that's that's it. You know, I
0: have a bunch of questions just about the show in general as, as you're talking about this. And I, I love the way you wrapped up the topic and and brought it back to writing. But I was thinking as you were talking of the number of long running, uh, not TV series, but book series, where after a period of time as a reader, uh, I get the sense that the author is kind of bored with the series or is is not putting the effort into it that they did earlier on in the series. I have no idea whether that's actually true or not. It's just a sense that I get as readers, as a reader. And I see that in reviews from time to time. I'm curious, this particular episode, do you know where it fell on the spectrum of episodes? I think this had like seven or eight or nine um, uh, years. I, I,
1: I don't remember off the top of my head. I don't think this went past six seasons. It might have only gone to five, but the um, this one took place either in the third or the fourth season. So it was pretty far along. And I will say about this show, as I described it to somebody else, uh, this show basically jumps the shark and then jumps the shark that jumps the shark and then jumps the shark that jumps the shark. <laughs> it just keeps <laughs> jumping the shark in terms of where the story goes, but it's interesting watching it happen. And it's interesting seeing the ideas and uh, there's clearly a lot of thought that has gone into building out the story world. And I find the story world itself fascinating enough. And I think that's what there's a couple of characters too, that I really enjoy that's kept pulling me back. I think, but like I said earlier, I have no idea how this compares to the books. So I don't want to, that, that I need to, be, I want to be careful to not conflate what we're seeing on TV with the books. The books might be amazing. They might not be, I have no idea, but in speaking specifically to a while it starts to feel like the authors are losing interest in it, I can only speak for my own experience, but in my own experience, all the authors I know, they do not they don't phone it in. Like they really do care, and they are trying to write the best story that they can write. But there are there's a thing with writing a series that it can be difficult to face that pressure, like. I've I've talked a lot before about how there's just this treadmill you're on it you have deadlines you have to keep going and in the meantime you're doing the marketing and the publicity and all this all these other things that are pulling on your attention and there's this constant need to try and do one better go take it further than the last one went and if you're not careful it can see you Jumping the shark, (laughs) you're going off in unrealistic ways. Which again, I have no idea if that's what happened with these books. Um, I know the books ran far longer in terms of volumes than the the season. It actually went seven
0: seasons. Um, Did it go seven seasons? Okay, okay.
1: All right, and and I know that at one point I did pick up the first book because I'm always curious. Well, how does the writing compare to um, the the TV and I I couldn't I got the first page of the first book is like the whole opening two or three episodes of the first TV season like everything you read on the first page it is fully acted out and scripted and in a way that just didn't even show up in the book and the I couldn't reconcile in my head the words on the page and the way the character was described with even the version of it that I was seeing on screen. Like I find the version on screen to be just (laughs) okay. But on page, it was even more so. And so I didn't get past two pages and I thought, you know, I'm not going to do this because I know those books were really, really, really popular. So I don't look at it like, There, I should be critical of them. I'm like, this is not for me. Like, I'm not the audience, these books, so I should not be speaking about them in that way. And so I just set them aside, and that's why I'm focusing on the TV series. But I really do believe with my full heart that when Charlene Harris was writing those books, she was giving everything she had to every single one of them to the best of her abilities. And I do not know authors who just phone phone their stories in they probably do exist and maybe the more popular you get and the wealthier you get and the better your sales the less uh burning hunger you feel to to get it right but even that i'm not sure about because this is it's not high art but it's still art it's still creativity and you're you're pouring yourself into it why would you want to do that in a slapdashy incomplete sort of way. I mean, just because I don't relate to that doesn't mean that it doesn't ever happen. But the people that I know really care. And so there are a lot of other factors I think that go into why series starts losing steam, why the next books don't live up to the one prior. And I, I do think a lot of it has to do with the pressure that you feel as an author to always take it further, take it further. And um, we had, we talked about that on a previous show about how taking it further doesn't necessarily have to be more extreme. You can dial it back and go in a different direction, make it more personal and still up the stakes and increase the intensity. But that is a separate discussion.
0: And I was not trying to imply that Charlene Harris was was mailing it in. I was more, uh, because I've read other, I've not read any of these books, but I, I was looking at the series page for this at Amazon. Mm-hmm. And it, like all long series, it starts out of, I'm just looking at the number of reviews. And the number of reviews was almost five thousand for the first book. And by book ten, uh, no, I'm sorry, by book eight, it was down to two thousand. And then it started jumping back up again to the point where um book thirteen, the last book in the series, had seven thousand reviews. So, uh, obviously the interest in this series peaked at the end
1: well <laughs> like i'm i'm wondering of the
0: move or the the tv series i I I, I
1: I that's that's where i was going i was thinking i wonder if it has something to do with that is that um yeah it, a whole new re- a whole new audience got brought to the books from the tv series i would suspect that it may creating. have
0: provided an ending that wasn't in, now this is just pure speculation, which is pointless, but it may have provided an ending that was not a part of the TV series.
1: It quite possibly could have, and now I'm very curious to find out about that, honestly, from a creative standpoint. The well, TV but, series does end uh, in a way that leaves you feeling, um, yeah, that's good, that's right, uh, that makes sense. Doesn't doesn't end just drops off and you're like, wait, that's all? So they did have time to bring it to completion. And now I'm like, so curious. I want to find out, like, did they get ahead of the books? Did they just compile some? Like, I'm so curious at how that went down.
0: It's, it's just fascinating how all of this works. So interesting discussion. I will link to the Patreon worksheet that Taylor mentioned, as well as uh, episode 253 in the show notes. So you'll be able to easily access those from the links. Uh, Thank you guys very much for listening. Thank you, Taylor, uh, for the tutorial. And uh, we look forward to being with you again next week. Thanks for being
1: here, guys. See you next week.